Hi folks, welcome to this week's episode of the Finance Hour. Uh, this episode is all about the 2017 budget, which was handed down on Tuesday night. So we'll go through the uh, the winners and the losers of the budget. Uh, just a little uh, hint for you, one of the big losers are the banks, and we'll talk about whether or not the uh, government has been punishing them for their bad behaviour. Uh, I've also got a little uh, fairy story for you as well, and my usual propeller head of the week. So I hope you enjoy the show, and if you've got any feedback, please email me at rubenz at adaptwealth.com.au or check out my website, www.adaptwealth.com.au. Good afternoon and welcome to the Finance Hour, whether you're listening live on JR or indeed on our podcast. This is the show where we try and make sense of the world of personal finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. My name's Ruben Zelwa, financial planner and owner at Adapt Wealth Management, and today I'm joined by Michael Chu, Director of Orange Wealth. Michael, thanks for being on today. Thanks for having us, Ruben. Now, Michael, the... Um, the topic, obviously, of today is the 2017 budget. Before we get into it, I will say that we do welcome your SMSs at any time, 047882258. So the federal budget, always very exciting. I had a client yesterday say to me, happy budget night. And I thought that was a little bit strange. It was not necessarily the most exciting night in my life, but I think sometimes people think it is. Michael, we're going to have a chat about the winners and losers from the budget. That's what everyone wants to know. They don't want to hear all the, all the other stuff. They want to know what it means for them. So I'm going to go through the five winners, and you've drawn the short straw with the losers. All righty, so here we go. In terms of the winners from last night, I would say that first home savers definitely are winners. From 1 July 2017, they can contribute up to 15000 per annum as salary sacrifice to super, and then they can withdraw that up to $30,000 to help fund their first home purchase. So it's only for first home owners. So that's a, a really tax effective way for them to fund their first home purchase. Secondly, people who sell their family home and are above age 65, well, they're going to be able to contribute $300,000 of the proceeds of that to superannuation. So that's a really good one for people who would otherwise not be able to contribute. People who've lost the age pension at 1 January 2017, so those people are going to um, get a pension concession card, so a lot of them lost that uh, at 1 January, and then are going to be able to get that back, which is of some benefit to them. Pensioners are also going to get a one-off uh, energy bill compensation bill of $75 for singles and $125 for couples. And finally, small businesses are still going to be able to get a $20,000 write-off when they by, by capital expenses, they can get a whole tax deduction in one year. So I don't think it's super exciting, um, but definitely some a couple of winners there. As I said, I think the biggest one is the first home savers. Now for the losers. Yeah, so to pay for all of that and some of the other big spending items like infrastructure, etc., um, there are a couple of big losers. So um, the top five uh, for this budget are the big banks, $6.3 billion collectively 
over the next four years by the government adding a six basis point levy on their liabilities. Um, for pretty much everyone who's working, apart from low-income workers, the government's increasing the Medicare levy from 2% to 2.5%, so a 0.5% increase. That'll raise $7.8 billion um, in the next two years, and that's to cover the, the NDIS, um, which is an important scheme. Um, big business, the so-called Google tax, um, is being realised in this budget, um, going after multinationals who redirect revenue overseas to tax havens to raise up to $4 billion. Um, foreign investors, so foreign investors will no longer be able to claim um, the primary residence exemption for capital gains tax purposes. Um, they're implying a ghost tax of at least $5,000 if um, a foreign investor has a property um, that's not uh, lived in for more than six months. And there's a limit on developers selling to foreign investors no more than 50% of the purchases in their new buildings. And finally, um, locally, uh, university students, a 7.5% fee hike um, up to $3,800 per year. Um, and their HECS repayments will start now at $42,000 of income per annum, um, which come, has come down from $51,000 of income per annum. Yeah, so those are the losers. So I think, you know, relative to previous years, like there's not a huge amount of change in this budget really, is there? Yeah, that's right. That's right. They've, they've really gone after things that are, um, I guess, pretty popular and things they feel like they yeah. can get through... Um, through the parliament and the yeah. Senate. And I think a big part of it is because in the last year they tried to put all these um, spending cuts through and they didn't get them through um, because they got blocked in the Senate with it. So they're kind of, I think, going a little bit easier on trying to you know do things that they think that Labor will support and they'll get through more easily. Yeah, you you would have seen a lot of commentators talking about this being a Labor light type budget. Mm. So much more to the centre of politics and... Um, potentially taking some of Labor's ideas. Some of the commentators have called this a big spending, big taxing budget. Yeah. Um, so they're spending money and they're taxing and they, they're going after uh, targets around taxing that are maybe more politically acceptable. Yeah, and I think the biggest example of that is the banks, um, you know, that extra tax they're putting on the banks. But we'll talk about that. So I think let's start talking about some of them in more detail. Um, as I said, I think the biggest one was accessing the super for first-home buyers. So the question is, is that good policy or bad policy? I mean, there's obviously the, the purpose of superannuation, and they enshrine this in law, is to um, you know help people provide for their long-term retirement. Yeah. So in a way, they're bastardizing that concept a little bit by letting people take money out for their first home. Interestingly, this isn't completely unprecedented. I remember about 15 years ago, there used to be a rule where you could if you made uh, voluntary contributions when you left your employer, you could actually withdraw them. Yeah, yeah. And th I think they're not talking about um, the um, employer contributions being part of this, withdrawing them. It's just yeah. just the contributions you've made yourself. So it is very similar to that yeah. but for the purpose of buying a first property as a, as a first-time property owner. Yeah, that's right. And I think the, this is not a reason. They do have other places in the world. I think Canada, for example, has got this as well. So it's not an unprecedented sort of concept, but what it is is a way for you to tax effectively, um, you know, fund that first home purchase because you obviously you get a tax benefit in putting the money into super, and then you get uh, a tax benefit when you take it out to buy the first home. Yeah, I think 
um, as a as a person saving, it doesn't have a lot of assets that grow in the market. Mm. As a person saving, saving enough money to get a deposit and to pay some of the the, the trans, transfer fees um, is pretty tough. Yeah. So this can definitely help. But part of the question is, what will it do to the market? Yeah, well, I think that at least they've been very targeted. Like when they talk about uh, trying to cool the property market, I think this you know is really targeted specifically at first home buyers. So they've done that quite well without trying to sort of go absolutely everybody. They've, they've, they've picked their mark right. Yeah, and it, it is an incentive for young people to save um, in a structure that already exists, so they don't have to learn something new. There was mm. some time ago a first home savers account, which was, That's a, right. that which was, was a saving scheme, yeah. um, but it had its own regulation around it, and it was probably quite difficult for the layperson to understand. Yeah, I think they end up, uh, people opened about a thousand of those across the country. That was like the biggest flop ever. Yeah. So this is at least part of an existing structure that people mm. understand. They understand how they can salary sacrifice into yeah. through their employer. The employees already have the mechanisms to do that. Yeah. They don't have to go and open a new account, but all the super funds are going to now have to, you know, start this flexibility. So the super funds are going to have to comply with some new issues. Yeah, that's right. I think generally there's two ways to make housing more affordable. You bring down prices, and the government's kind of committed that they don't mm. really want to do that. I think Scott mm. Morrison said there's two thirds of Australians own own homes. Um, and well, I don't think those. they even could do it if they wanted to. Yeah. I mean, really, how do they bring down prices? Yeah. I mean, they can they can do some of their mechanisms, but at the end of the day, it's the it's a free market that's going to determine the prices. And I think the government's got a very limited role to play there yeah the only two places they can do it are the incentives around um investing so negative gearing mm. and capital gains tax and i think um i think to a degree both parties are reluctant to um mm. to, to tackle those and the other part the, so the second way is just to help people increase their their um their deposit to get into the market but the question the question will become you know will that drive more demand yeah and will that just drive prices up I mean, one of the things I can see now happening is that the you know the property developers for new homes all of a sudden they're going to be spruiking this, you know, this extra ability to um you know to ramp up your deposit. Like it's going to become a real marketing thing for these developers, I reckon. Yeah, um, I I read some commentary from a couple of different um, sources. So the Property Council of Australia said the scheme would help hundreds of thousands of Australians save for a deposit for their initial home. So mm. Property Council was really bullish on it. Um, yeah. There's an economist, Saul Eastlake, um, and he his 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 view is that he's hoping not many people take it up because um, he thinks anything that um, allows people to spend more money than they than they have previously on housing um, will will do things like make uh, housing more expensive and put people in more debt. Mm. He doesn't think that it will just help them buy the house they were looking for before. Yeah, okay. Well, it's interesting. As I said, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the taxpayer is going to be funding this a bit. So it's, you know, the taxpayer is funding people to make tax-effective savings effectively for their deposit. So hopefully it has the intended consequence. Yep. So that was probably the biggest one. I mean, the other one which um, which grabs the headlines is people being able, downsizers, being able to sell the family home and contribute uh, up to $300,000 of that to super. And that's uh, an interesting one. I think that, that that's along the same thing of housing. I mean, the, the concept is is that you've got these baby boomers who um, you know who live in these big houses and they don't want to downsize because it's just not effective. They can't get the money into super. They're going to lose potentially part-age pension. Um, and 
effectively that reduces the amount of stock on the market. So I think that the the idea is here. This will be more give them more flexibility to downgrade their family home. Perhaps you know make it available for the younger generation to buy, and um, they can put money into super. Yeah, and it's really I think it's really focusing on that that middle tier of um, people who are looking to live in kind of slightly bigger houses with families um and and there's a shortage of stock in that space the the thing that's not really clear is how many of those there wasn't much statistics that came through on this one with how many people are likely to um to to take this up and what that means in terms of new stock or availability of stock so it's kind of hard to understand what impact this is really look i I think this whole thing is garbage i think it's going to have very very little impact i mean the big issue here is the fact that the principal residence doesn't count for the asset test for Centrelink purposes, right? Yeah. So you can live in a multi-million dollar house and none of it counts for Centrelink. So you can live in a $3 million house, have very little other assets, and you can get a full age pension, right? So the only way... So, so there's, a big, there's a big incentive to stay in a large family home to maximize your pension. Mm-hmm. The only way this was going to have an impact from that perspective is if they said part of the proceeds... We're not going to be eligible. Um, we're not going to be count towards the asset test for age pension. Yeah, but that's not happening, right? No, that's not happening, right? So it's all it is is about putting some extra money into super. I just don't think that's enough of an incentive for people to downsize from their family home. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a uh, this will be an interesting one to see how it actually plays out and whether there's any benefit from it. Yeah, I mean the other thing people forget is they say, oh yes, you know we've got to get as much money into super as we can, but what they forget is you can still earn quite a lot of income outside of super and not pay any tax. So basically, people could still earn about $25,000 a year once you're, once you're retired and over 65 and not pay any tax. So you can still have quite a lot of money outside super and be in a zero-tax environment. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think that it's, that to, you know, it's so political about, oh, getting more money into super, getting more money into super... But for a lot of retirees, it doesn't actually matter that much. Once they've got you know a, a chunk of their money in super and a chunk outside, they're not paying tax anyway. So it's um you know I just think this is one of those things. It's like it's a big concept. I I don't think it's going to change behaviour one bit. Yeah, I think one of the things the government tried to do is come up with what they called a comprehensive policy around housing affordability, mm. and this is one of those measures that they've thrown in there. But it's not really easy to see how the whole package reduces, it makes housing any more affordable. No, no. I, I, I really There's lots of little small things that don't really seem like they're going to be big hitters. Yeah, I really think this one doesn't work. I mean, obviously, they've been doing other things as well to cool the market. They're, you know, they're telling banks they can't lend as much money out on interest-only loans. They're telling banks that they, um, you know, they, they, they've got to cap their, their rate of increase of investment loans. Yep. Some of the foreign investment rules. The foreign investment rules. That, that, that's, they're pretty significant yep. as well. So they're doing a whole range of things. But yeah, I mean, I think just this particular one is not going to make much difference. Yeah, I agreed with that. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break and then head on to the other major things in the budget. Quick song break. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. You are listening to either our podcast, The Finance Hour, or JR Live. And we welcome your SMSs 0478822258. Today we are talking about the budget. I'm here with Michael Chu, Director of Orange Wealth. 
So we've talked about a couple of things. We're going to move on to the next one, the big one, the bank levy. So this, I think, caught everyone by surprise, I think it's fair to say. So what their government is doing is they are putting a big whopping tax on the five biggest banks. As you said, they're going to raise about over $6 billion over the next four years. So the question is, is this good policy? It's obviously very politically easy for the government just to go after the banks. They're not going to lose any votes for it. But the question is, Michael, is this good policy? Is this a good way for them to raise revenue? I think it's the an easy way for them to raise revenue. Um, and the ba- listen, I, th- I think the banks haven't done themselves any favours over the last mm. few years. They make combined about $30 billion of profit each year. Um, and they have regularly had issues where their ethics have been called into question. But that's no reason to raise the taxes. No, no. I mean, I have a bit of a problem with that when people say, oh, the banks are making so much money. But what they don't look at is how much assets have they got invested to make that sort of money? Yep. How many employees do they have? What kind of services do they provide? You know, that using just an absolute dollar of, you know, $30 billion of profit doesn't actually mean anything unless it's relative to the size of the bank. Yeah, I, you, you're right. It's It's not a reason to tax the banks. I think they looked at what they were trying to do in the budget, which was spend more money in a whole bunch of different areas and said, well, how do we raise revenue without raising personal taxes? Mm. And they've gone after big business. I just think it's such poor policy. Mm. I, I really think you just pick out an area you know, of, of the business world that's making a lot of money, doing well, and just individually slugging them. I, I just reckon it's a really, really poor precedent. And I think the banks probably feel like They've been surprised by this one. Oh, I'm the sure they were. The commentary that's coming out from the banks today is we, they had no idea it was coming. Well, what's really interesting is that yesterday in the stock market, the banks got sold off a lot. Mm. Yeah, that, so that, I mean, they say collectively the bank prices got sold off by about you know $14 billion, something like that. Those figures are also meaningless. But you know, it was suggested that there was a, possibly a leak. That, that you know that people or in, potentially investors found out about it and sold the banks down yesterday because of it. It's interesting. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> I don't think it's going to have such a big impact in terms of their long term performance and the long term share prices. I think it's basically a um, a drop in the ocean. Who do you think pay, who do you think is going to pay for it in the end of the day? Well, you know, there, there may be look. I, I suppose it's a combination, isn't it? You know, they can increase interest rates to some extent, and they're at the end of the day, they'll increase interest rates as much as they can anyway, like what we've seen. There may be a little bit less in terms of shareholder returns. Yeah, which in, in essence is paid for by individuals who own those shares, but super funds as well. Yeah, Because banks make right. a big proportion of um, stocks in Australian super funds. Yeah, yeah, they'd be a massive... I mean, they're, they're about 25 30% of the market. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, when we talk about the losers, you know, we talk about the banks being losers, but you could also say that the... Um, the bank shareholders to a degree the banks have to pass it on somewhere it has to go to yeah. consumers or the shareholders one of those two groups that's right or they or they make a little bit less profit yeah. you know their profit doesn't grow as much as it otherwise would have yep yep um, found, I found it interesting there's a, like a few other new policies around banks they're setting up um, a new body called the Australian Financial Complaints Authority yeah um, 
which is really tasked to look at how to resolve bank disputes. Right. And that's also when people want to come and sue their financial planners, hey? They've yes, got a I think different that body falls to into go. that, oh, yep. that space. I've luckily had no experience with, uh, <laughs> with the current one, which is FOS. Yeah, no, we've never spoken to And I hope either. to have no experience with, um, you know, with this new body either. Um, I hope it just remains theoretical for me. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it will, Ruben. Mm. Um, the other thing is they're putting executives in banks on notice that their actions will be personally attributed. So there's a, um, a registration for executives uh, if you're going to be an executive of a bank and if you have serious misconduct, they'll deregister and you won't be able to work at another banking institution. Yeah, um, and yeah then, one of those things, I don't know. Do you really think that's going to make a big impact? I mean, how can you make how can you make an individual you know an individual that's part of a cog of this enormous bank make them individually responsible for you know for what occurred in the bank? There'll be all these mitigating factors of why they were or they weren't. If it went through legal process, I'd just be really surprised that you know you could really attack them. I think, and maybe this is short term. Um, in that people think about it when it first comes up and if they don't hear it and you think about um, executives being questioned over this stuff in the future, it kind of died down. But I think to start with, it'll create some culture around doing the right things. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose the other thing they did similar to that was they um, they introduced the um, you know, the pay um, with the bank's you know salaries. They actually have to get approved by the general shareholders. Yeah. And if the shareholders sort of knock it back, they get like a three-strike policy. The other thing that... That's a little similar to that. The other thing that the executive um, um, staff will be... uh, That the government will be able to do with the executive staff is clawback bonuses Mm. if they haven't done the right thing. So there is some personal... There's something personal in it on the line for them. The question Mm. is, can they do anything, which is your your point? Can they really enforce that? That'll be something Mm. worth worth seeing. Um, The other thing is banks are subject to bigger fines now. Mm. 50 million for small banks up to 200 million for mm. large banks for mm. serious misconduct as the I think that's the minimum fine that they can receive mm. so I guess the, another question is what is serious misconduct how how's that defined that's that type of thing we haven't haven't really seen anything no. on well it's um it's interesting isn't it because I mean labor were calling for a royal commission into the banks because of you know all those things that you said that were going on and the um, you know the liberals have been very much against it, mm. so maybe this is their kind of way of saying, "Hey, we're taking some action here." It's, they're taking it seriously, yeah. And like like I said at the start, the banks have made it easy for them to be a target. Yeah, but I still don't think any of that is good reason to slug them tax. Yep. So, this to me is a real negative. But hey, you know, once again, it's a function of them not being able to get a whole lot of other stuff through Parliament. A whole lot of other stuff from last year's budget. All their savings measures haven't gone through, and that's really a so, reflection of the political system where, exactly. where it's at at the moment. So have a crack at the banks. Why yeah. not? Yeah, it's nice and easy. Okay, so um, what else have we got to talk about here? So we've talked about the um, we've talked about the first home savers. I mean, the other one uh, that we should talk about is you know regaining access to the pension concessioner card. I think you said you don't haven't dealt with this that much, but one of the things that occurred, you know, in one January seventeen is that they've got for the you know for Centrelink for the age pension they've got an assets test, and they greatly they made that a lot more uh, harder to qualify for an age pension. So there's a whole lot of people that actually lost their age pension, 
And one of the most um, beneficial things of having an age pension is this pension concession card. So people lost it. They actually got another card instead, a Commonwealth Seniors Health Card, but it's not quite as good as this pension concession card. So what they're effectively doing is like winding back the clock and saying, you know, you can keep that pension concession card. So it's pretty minor um, because the difference between the cards that people had you know, as a result of losing the pension, and this card, this card is not that significant. But you know, they've rolled that back. Mm. What I've read about it is that there's about ninety thousand former pensioners. That, yeah. So it's a quite, a, it's quite a number. And yeah, and I had a couple of them, and it, and it was pretty, you know, dis- disturbing. I mean, you know, we talk about these superannuation changes, but these were pretty big as well. You know, when you have got people who might have been getting a pension of ten or twelve thousand dollars a year. And all of a sudden they've got zero. It has a very big impact on on people in in that in that bracket. Yeah, and you feel something when you lose it. Absolutely, you really do. So, and pensioners are not um, they don't they're not the most well off because yeah. they're on the pension. So, um, so yeah, they can they can use everything they can get their hands on, which is which is good. So this sounds like a small thing, but it's a positive thing. For it's a, yeah, it's a small token, but yeah, as you say, it might give them a few votes. Um, the other one, which was interesting, uh, you didn't mention the losers, but with people who have got rental property. So we talked about mm. you know negative gearing and you know the fact that they didn't change that. But what they did do, there was a great little rort where people who wanted to go and visit their residential investment properties, and hey, they might be in the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast, and they want to, you know, go and visit there, and they want to just make sure that the water's still running and you know the windows are clean. Well, guess what? They got a tax-deductible trip, you know, to go and visit their property. So the people used to claim a tax deduction for that travel expenses to go and visit their property, and, uh, you know, that was a bit of a rort, let's be honest. Yeah, I I, I had heard of this one, and um, uh, I thought it was interesting. I thought it would be quite a small amount of money, but when I've, mm. when I've, when I've looked at the budget this morning, um, this is estimated to save the government $540 million. So... It's got to have been big enough. It's 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 not it's not a billion dollars, but it's big enough that it makes sense to do. And mm. um, people shouldn't be paying for people's holidays, basically. Yeah, I just think that was um, that was a really funny one. Yeah, I mean they did. I think did they did uh, do a couple of other things for um, property investors. Um, one thing that property investors can do is they can depreciate, you know, the value of the building. Yep. As so for tax purposes, so they get each year effectively a tax write-off. And one of the things that you used to be able to do was if, let's say, you bought a property and you know, let's say it had a dishwasher or a light fitting in there and you just bought that as part of the property, so you could still keep claiming a deduction each year for, for, you know, for the depreciation of that. So basically they've reversed that and said, listen, you know, unless you've bought the actual thing yourself, you can't. Yeah, it yeah, wasn't. You, you they're saying it wasn't wasn't an expense unless you paid for it yourself, which is you know, I think that's okay. I think that's a small mm. one as well in terms of the amount that it brings in. It's just it's another yeah. small thing in the in the the overall housing affordability piece, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, look, we're going to take another break. I think we've got through most of the big things, but I want to have a bit of a chat about good debt and bad debt after we play one more song. Welcome back to the Finance Hour. You're listening to Ruben Zoa, Director of Adapt Wealth Management. And today in the studio, I have with me Michael Chu, Director of Orange Wealth. Now, Michael, one of the things that they talked about uh, before the budget, which um, they didn't didn't seem to get so much airplay today, though, was this differential between good debt and bad debt. So 
In financial advice, we talk a lot about that. So, you know, bad debt is this sort of debt that's used for personal purposes. Certainly things like credit card debt, um, you know, debt to buy some furniture or television. Even motor vehicle debt is bad debt. You know, you could even, if you buy your own property and you sort of overspend on that, effectively, so it's a real luxury, you know, it's bad debt. You don't get a tax deduction for bad debt. The good debt we generally call is when you've borrowed money to buy something that's income producing and that's going to increase in value. So if you um, if you borrow money to buy a property, if you borrow money to buy shares, you know those are generating income, they're generating good growth for you, well above what the debt uh, is, that we consider to be good debt. So effectively what the government have said is, well, our debt's just blowing out right, more and more. You know, it's a hell of a lot more than what we ever thought it was going to be. So let's make this distinction between good debt and bad debt. And if you're cynical, you probably think, oh, you know, what a load of rubbish, right? They're just trying to, you know, trying to make us not think they're in so much debt. But I have to say, I actually do buy it. I actually think it, there is a difference. I think um, if the government takes on debt to, say, build new roads and infrastructure, that's going to make a really big difference to the economy for the longer term. You know, firstly, it's going to give people jobs in terms of building it, but then it's going to you know, make all the different parts of the economy work more efficiently and get sort of more productivity. I see, I do see that as good debt. Um, what I see as bad debt is if they've borrowed money to fund their kind of living expenses. So it's a little bit like a person just putting, you know, more and more money on their credit card and not being able to pay it back for their day-to-day expenses, not building them any any big assets. And one of the things that, you know, that is is, is effectively giving people you know, giving people money. So they're giving people, you know, for the pensioners, they're giving them $125 each, you know, to help with their energy bills. You know, if they borrow to give that sort of thing away, you know, they're really just, you know, it it evaporates straight away. Yeah, one of the things that they're focusing on around that good debt is really the um, the roads infrastructure, roads and rails. Yeah. They've got, they announced, I think, $75 billion of roads and rail projects, Mm. I think was the number. Um, the, uh, The inland freight um, um, train between Melbourne and Brisbane being a big one, Sydney, mm. Sydney's second airport. And um, from memory, there's even a potentially a Melbourne um, Melbourne rail link between Melbourne and the airport as well. Um, so they're, they're projects that are, um, one, they create heaps of jobs, mm. thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of jobs they'll create. Two, um, they'll set up infrastructure in Australia for a long time, for decades and decades. Yeah. So they're... They are that big long-term asset that supports growth in Australia, and that that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely, and I mean the truth is, there's also an argument. I mean, the governments are there sometimes to sort of smooth demand. So let's say if the economy is going poorly, right, and there's not as much private sector demand, then it does make sense for the government to be running some budget deficits to put more money into the economy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that actually makes sense. So. And it's quite reasonable for them to do that. But, you know, when they go and, you know, when well, when the GFC, when they gave, you know, millions of dollars to schools, when they wrote checks for, you know, $700 to people, I mean, you know, and that, and, and, and they funded that using debt. I mean, that was just crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah that's that's not good policy. And it, it, um, it, it, is, um, it is encouraging spending of money that we don't have, which as advisors for our mm. clients... 
um, we would always warn people off. So yeah, you've, it, it's good and bad. It's really about the purpose of it. And um, if you're building the if you're building the Australian economy and you're building good things for Australian mm. people, um, there's, there's some sense in that argument about taking debt on to do that. Absolutely, but it's one of those things. that's a big political issue, isn't it? I mean, they say, "Oh, Labor say, oh, you know, we we got our debt down," and Liberals say, "You know, it was your fault and it was your fault." It's one of those numbers that people like to throw around when they want to make a political point. Yeah, and 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 I think you you hit it off at the start of this this segment that the debt in Australia has been increasing. It's I think six hundred billion mm. is the cap or something. Yeah, now. it's 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 massive, and it 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 hasn't it's been increasing for. For, for decades so um, you, we do need control over that yeah. um, but you don't want to not be able to deliver projects to to the mm. Australian economy that it needs to, to get itself out as well. Yeah and I mean um, you know interest rates are low you know if we think interest rates are low for our mortgages but you know the government can even borrow at lower rates mm. than that so if they're using it for productive purposes you know I think that the debt does make sense Yep so anyway, I thought that was reasonable. Although it's interesting, I don't know about today. Did you hear much talk about that good debt and bad debt today? I didn't. No, I didn't see it in any of the headlines. No, I heard nothing about and it. So there's a whole bunch of articles on winners and losers, yeah. and um, what to take out of out of it as individuals. I think they focus more on the individuals today. Yeah, well, maybe I think you know the government put out this good debt bad debt thing, and maybe they wanted to see how it was going to fly, see if people liked it or not, and then yeah. see whether or not they're going to make it part of the narrative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, a lot of testing that happens, and you know, up to maybe the it, maybe it, you know, they didn't get such a good reaction, so they just figured, you know, we'll leave it. Yeah. But I think it does have some merit um, that discussion. Yep. Now, what I want to talk about is pixies and fairies. Now, you've got two little girls. Yep. Um, do you ever tell them sort of Dalek fairy stories or... No, but I'm keen to hear one today any so that make... I can go home tonight and tell yeah, them. Yeah, well, I think, you know, what you can do is rather than bringing out, you know, their favourite book at night, you know, their little pixie book, why don't you bring out the budget papers? <laughs> <laughs> That's but, a good idea. Yeah. It'll help them get to sleep well, really quick. <laughs> <laughs> so bring out the budget papers, but look, the only issue is it's not going to be in the front. You're going to have to really dig deep. Yeah. Okay, so you're going to have to dig to that page... 350 or something like that, right? And when you get there, right, you won't be disappointed. Because what you're going to see is what their forward estimates are, right? So what they predict the budget to do in three or four years' time. And I'll tell you, that is, it'll make your imagination run wild, okay? Because they really have absolutely no clue what's going to happen in three or four years. Yet they still like to talk about it. They like to say, oh, we're going to get back to surplus in a few years. Well, it's easy. I've heard that story for the last every budget in the last few few years for sure. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about that, right? Because uh, the treasurer swan in two thousand and twelve. So we had a budget deficit then, but he said when he uh, looked at the book, he said, "Look, in two thousand and thirteen, we're actually going to get a surplus, right?" So he predicted one year we're going to get a surplus. What actually happened? Well, there was nineteen billion dollar deficit then. So he only missed it by nineteen billion, but then the other thing is, is he talked about the debt as well, right? So he talked about the um, what the peak debt was going to be, what the you know we were going to get to in total debt, and he said it was going to peak at one hundred and forty-five billion dollars. But guess what? It's predicted now to be three hundred and seventy-five billion dollars. Yeah. So he missed that by about two hundred and thirty billion, right? 
But let's not just blame Labor. I mean, this is, yeah, they all do it. They don't have a clue. Hockey in 2014, you know, he, he said, oh, there's going to be a surplus in 2018-19, right? And what's likely to be now with the prediction there's going to be a $21 billion deficit. You know, now uh, Morrison says there's going to be a surplus predicted in 2020 slash 21. I think to a large... Do you believe it? Well, no, not really. It's, but And that's that's mostly because they can't control... They, they don't. Then it's not within their power to control all of the elements which go towards producing... Yeah, but why surplus. bother doing it? Why bother? I it's, mean, it's just a complete fiction. Yep. It's a complete fiction. Yep. It's... I think they have to put a forecast in because otherwise people have nothing to talk about and... They're not working towards anything. But I don't think anyone truly believes in their forecasts. I don't think they do. But what, what they should do, right, is we just go from budget to budget. Why don't they, before they present the budget, they say, listen, this is what we budgeted for for last year. This is what we thought was going to happen. This is actually what happened. These are the reasons why it happened. Yeah, that right? makes, so, makes co- it's common sense. It makes sense, but yep. it won't be a great story, right, will it? Because okay. they'll generally get it wrong. Yep. So then they're going to have to justify why they got it wrong. And then it's going to be great fodder, you know, for the other party, you know, to have a crack at them for. And that's what you see happening right before this budget and even post the budget mm. is that the um, the hockey budget in 2014, where they they had a whole they had 13 billion dollars of savings cuts that they couldn't get through the Senate. Mm. They're still talking about those and what went right and wrong with those now, mm. even though we've got a brand new budget. So. Mm. Sometimes the political debate and conversation is just a bit a bit numbing mm. um, around these types of things, and yeah. they're much better off getting on with it and implementing it. The one thing I will say around Morrison's budget is it looks like a lot more of his policies will pass just because of where they're sitting from a Labor-Liberal Yeah, but that's also because they've, you know, yeah, they, they haven't made any really hard decisions. Correct, yeah. Yeah, they've taken the politically easy route. I mean, you know, is Labor going to... Tell them not to, you know, tax the banks $4 billion? No. No way. I mean, the other thing they've done, which we didn't actually mention, they're increasing the, well, we did mention, they're increasing the Medicare levy by half a percent. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the only one Labor will maybe put some pressure on them around. Yeah, but But they want the NDIs funded, so. um, Yeah. I think think they're going to let that through. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Hockey put a whole bunch of spending Mm. cuts in which they wouldn't put through. Morrison's put more spending in and raised taxes to get that but from from business and he's going to be down with that too. So you kind of you can kind of uh, understand that they've got to try different avenues for getting stuff done. In the end, if they're getting stuff done and we're moving forward and, and we're not stagnant, I think that's a good starting point. All righty. Well, that's our analysis of the budget. Now, um, Michael, I do have a segment called My Propeller Head of the Week. And my propeller head of the week is on super contributions. So we've talked a little bit about the um, super contributions for first homeowners, but I'm going to talk about the more uh, plain vanilla super contributions. So these are the contributions that an individual can make each year, uh, tax deductible. You know, if you're um, an employee, you instruct your employer to make these contributions. If you're self-employed, you can make the contributions yourself and claim deduction. But this was last year's budget. They're actually decreasing from 1 July um, 17, the amount that you can do each year, right? So uh, for this year, the current financial year, if you're over 50, you could do 35,000 contribution. And if you're under, you could do 30,000. Now for everybody, they're reducing it to 25,000 from 1 July. 
So that means if your salary is sacrificing to super, it's something that I encourage most of my clients to do. You're going to have to tell your employer that you have to uh, cut that back from 1 July. So it's a bit of a shame. Uh, it's not great for people who are trying to really, you know, bring up their super balances. But once again, it was done because this was something that they could get through politically, if we're talking about it, because it's only a small percentage of the population that could afford to put that much into super. So, Yeah, and one of the things we've through. seen with super generally is the government, governments both sides, trying to reduce the amount of benefit that um, wealthy people have exactly. in super. And this is one of those one of those policies. Um, exactly right. So they got that through. All right. So that really pretty much uh, uh, sums up this show. Hopefully you've, uh, you know, you've gained something out of it. Uh, as I said, the budget this year wasn't probably quite as exciting as previous years, but nevertheless, it gets a lot of press time. And hopefully we have uh, explained some of the issues that might affect you. Michael, thanks very much for um, for coming on board today. It's right. been a great discussion. You're a natural on the radio, so um, hope to have you back at some point in the future. Thanks, Ruben. I enjoyed it.